The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. Hannah Daly has a great story to tell, which she tells in her own book, Knowing No Boundaries. Now, the fact that she has written a book is itself an achievement because she's profoundly dyslexic, dyspraxic, has sensory processing disorder, and although she has multiple university degrees, she actually can't read or write. Hannah Daly, thank you very much for joining us. And you may be familiar to some people who are Rosa Tree fans because you were the Dublin contestant. What year? 2008. <laughs> a little while ago. A little while ago. Tell us, I think a lot of people would find it very hard to believe that there are people who can't read and write. Yeah. And then particularly who come and produce their own book. But tell us about yeah, that. Yeah, okay. So um, I have a reading age of a seven-year-old because I have severe dyslexia. Um, and I write, I speak about it in my book. I actually went to five different schools chasing an education. Um, I even went and spent a period of time in a special reading school called Catra Macaulay's. But my reading didn't improve um, so much so that when I was reassessed at age 17, I still had the reading age of a seven year old. So obviously, as you said, I have multiple university degrees. I'm also an occupational therapist um, with a postgrad in sensory integration. So I've done university three times, <laughs> um, but not in the traditional way in terms of I didn't sit down and read and write. The writing component affects me because of my dyspraxia. So my gross and fine motor. So how I initially when I was little, I would have bumped into things um, how I walked, how I move around, um, how I can button my top and how I can hold a pencil. So obviously holding a pencil is really difficult um, to keep it steady, to apply the correct pressure. So a good example today is um, I went to the bookshop or to the post office to post a box of books off to Dubry, but I couldn't write the address on the thing and it was I had no one to ask to help. So I got a printout and I cut it and stick it with tape to the box so that it can have the address on it. So I'm constantly having to find shortcuts or tricks to make thing to do things that, you know, a typical person can do because of my disabilities. But you do, you cope. I do, yeah. And I guess I'm a fighter and a problem solver, but not everybody is as creative thinker as as I am. But also we probably shouldn't li- have to live in a world where it's so much based on read, write, you know, in order to um, achieve or advance. But even for doing this book, did you get a ghostwriter that you sat down and did interviews with? No. Um, so the book started, as you said, about the Rosa Tralee. I spoke to Ray Darcy about having dyslexia and dyspraxia on stage and everybody, I've got so much response saying, tell me more, this is really helpful. So from there, um, I was asked to do talks and I just put, I can't read, so my presentations were photographs of me as a child and I would just talk about them. Um, and then when I came to writing the book, I just kind of accumulated all these stories, dictated them, commissioned someone to type them up, then listened back then, you know, dictated how I wanted to change. And that was a process. And then eventually I got a professional editor on board who didn't change that much, weirdly, except for the fact like there's a story in it where I'm distraught because my husband asked me to marry him and I, I, I wasn't what I was expecting. And she just wrote like, well, what were you expecting? So then I just dictated another story, what I was expecting. And we kind of knitted it together. So it's a very non-conventional book. Um, and you have to remember now, I wasn't someone who read books. So it wasn't, I didn't, you know, I don't. So I don't why did read. you want to write it and publish it? I wa- I'm an occupational therapist. So I now, you know, diagnose kids with dyspraxia and sensory processing disorder. And I work with adults with, and young, young adults with dyslexia, trying to help them find their way of presenting their information. 
So because of that, I realised my story was really important to tell as the lived experience, not as a therapist. But I understood it from both perspectives now. And I just felt it could help people. And it has. Like since it's been out the last few weeks, I am getting emails, calls, people saying like, my child is struggling or, you know, my son has failed his driving test five times. You know, you've given us hope. Um, we're going to try this now. I, I didn't understand what was going on for my child. I thought they were naughty or I'm going to change the way I teach. So I had an email from a teacher saying um, that I've destigmatized, you know, neurodiversity. And I think that's really important. Because from the extracts I've read, it's, you got left down, I think, by some of your teachers as a child. We're going back 30 years ago. And I don't think that's unfair to say. Maybe it was a degree of ignorance. Maybe it was a degree of laziness. But even though considerable evidence was put in front of one or two teachers about the nature of your dyslexia, you were just instead written off as when below IQ. Stupid, yeah. And that hurts. It still hurts today, to be honest. Um, one of the emails I got from someone said the teacher is very much alive in 2023, unfortunately. And equally, a teacher can have the most positive effect for a student. So I talk about in the book, I had a dance professor who taught me how to crawl. He's like, yeah, move your hips now. And, you know, because I didn't crawl as a child and he invested in that for me, which, OK, I was never an amazing dancer afterwards. But my sense of, you know, bilateral integration was, was amazing. So, yeah, the the education system, as I said, I chased, someone said, you know, you chased your human rights and I did to a degree. Because it strikes me that obviously you had loving parents who very much looked after you and cared for you and fought for you to actually get the treatments that you needed. It must have been, in retrospect, very distressing even growing up because of the nature of the dyspraxia, as you explain it, or the sensory issues, that things that we all take for granted were not just a challenge to you, but were painful to you. Yeah, and it's, I struggled to try and fit in and I struggled to comply and I was like a goody two-shoes. I just wanted to be liked. I just wanted to do it. And, you know, my motivation is still today, like I want to get things right. I want to, I want to achieve. But it's a bit like having, you know, two people going on the same journey. One person's going in a car and I'm going on a bike loaded with weights because it really took an awful lot of, you know, want to get forward. And I had to have that inside me. But my mum, as you said, I had an amazing mother. My mum supported me and ha challenged things before I had the voice to challenge those things. So, for example, I did my leave insert with a reader and a scribe. When I went to university, I had to fight for, you know, similar resources um, to be able to access the curriculum and um, to be able to show the knowledge that I was attaining in a conventional way. Um, because I know it's even things like when you started and you went to England, isn't it, to go to college yeah. first, that you couldn't read the timetable. No. So you needed help in doing that. But I'd imagine that that then comes as a shock to the people who you're studying with or who are lecturing you. And they go, who's she after joining us in college and she can't even read a timetable? Yeah, and there were some amazing co colleagues on like my course that would say like, stop laughing. She just gets to listen to it once. She needs to take it in a class. She can't go home and like listen to it, which is dead right because I do need to hear it. I have to absorb it the first time because I don't have the luxury of picking up the book and reading it again. Um, find, trying to figure out, yeah, exactly where, what form to fill in to get your ID. You know, all of these little tiny things are massive for someone like me. Um, as well as having your being. So again, people with dyspraxia can often have executive functioning difficulties. And what that means is that sequencing, planning and um, timekeeping. So I set alarms. I have all these, you know, little hacks that I do to, to keep me on track. Um, so they're the additional stuff that's going on for someone with dyspraxia as well as not being able to read and write. 
And there's nothing you can actually do to cure it as such, is there? I mean, this is a condition that you, you're born with and you adapt accordingly, is it? Well, I don't think, and this is something I feel strongly about, you don't cure me. I'm not broken. Yeah. I'm not sick. I'm just I different. I didn't you. I no, said with the this condition, condition. I know, but it's, it's a difference. Just, no, there is a difference and I get you. I'm only, I'm only playing fun. But I think the concept, sometimes people do kind of, parents go, well, you, you know, can they be, and I was like, well, actually what we need to do and what I have discovered, and maybe that's the key to me being as successful as I am, I've embraced how I do things, who I am, and I don't try and shove myself into a different something I'm not. So I talk about the child's shapes order that maybe most people traditionally, you know, not broken are the circles. I'm a triangle. If you try and shove me enough, I might fit in. But if I don't fit in, you know, that I'm left out or if I do fit in, I'm broken and a fragile interpretation of a circle. But if you find the other shape and some people are hexagons and other shapes, but if you find the one for me and allow me to be in there with all the other shapes, I'm I'm content and happy. So I'm not looking to be a circle. I'm happy being a triangle, but I would like society to understand that there is other ways of doing things um, for some people. But equally, if you just have a little bit of a challenge and let's say the motor coordination, yeah, I work with kids all the time trying to help them be a little bit more regulated, especially in terms of the sensory integration so that they don't have such an adverse reaction to noise or something. You can dampen down that sensory system so that your response isn't as as high. Yeah, and as an adult, have all these things been dampened down for you? Sometimes I have been known to get very distressed um, and have a meltdown and, you know, little noises in like a hotel room, like zzz. So I'll do a lot of research before going away for a night to make sure that the room isn't beside a plant room because that would really annoy me. And we'd even, my, my dear husband, he's amazing, but he knows who I am and how I am. And sometimes if I'm really distressed, I can't advocate for myself, but he knows me enough to be able to say, okay, no, Hannah needs a quiet table or we're going to, we're going to cancel, you know, but, our reservation. But, and I think this comes across in the book as well, is that it's very important that you get these supports as you go along, because otherwise you might have given up trying. And it's when kids give up trying that then they can have very difficult teenage years and very difficult adult years. Yeah, and it, it it limits the opportunities they have as an adult to earn, to have social networks, to have positive self-esteem, positive mental health. Um, I there's a talk about it in the book, the time when I almost gave up and just thought, no, I'm not I'm not giving up. I've gone I've gotten too far to give up. Like, why would I stop now? Um, but it is hard work. Like, it's exhausting. Someone said, like, when they were reading the book, they're like, I just felt so exhausted because <laughs> it was in, like, you know, a sense of what my life is like. Um, and some kids work so hard and maybe we don't value the amount of effort they're putting in. But what stopped me was motivation and um, a drive. And I think that when I work with a child, the first thing I say is, what do you want to be when you grow up? And they're like, I'm 10. I don't know what I want to be. And I'm saying you need to harvest whatever it is that makes you feel positive and passionate about life and use that to stay in school. And just to finish, Hannah, it's very clear that you have a very high IQ, despite teachers writing you off as having a low IQ because of your difficulties with reading and writing. Thank you. Will you write that in a piece of paper and I'll hang it on the fridge? (laughs) (laughs) Thanks a million. All right. It's a fascinating story. Um, Just very briefly, how many children in Ireland is it reckoned might have this condition? Um, Between 5 and 10% have uh, dyspraxia. That many? Yeah. And the overlap between dyspraxia, dyslexia or dyspraxia and ADHD or dyslexia and ADHD or other autism are quite, quite a lot. Um, And yeah, so it's, it's, it affects probably one in every class. And I'm sure everyone out there knows someone who is affected by the condition. Um, so yeah and the story the the book isn't as it's you know it's funny and it's honest and it's raw and it's not you know it's not lecturing but the hope that people take from the book what they need 
Knowing No Boundaries is the book Hannah Daly. Thank you so much for being with us here on The Last Word of Today FM. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today.